0: In 1939, MGM released a little movie called The Wizard of Oz. The film starred a young Judy Garland and featured costumes, settings, technology, and general movie magic that had never been seen before. Even all these years later, The Wizard of Oz is still widely considered a classic by many, and I think that most people have at least one special memory associated with it. It's one of those pop culture moments that almost everyone can connect with. But, as is often the case, before there was a movie, there was a book. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was written by L. Frank Baum and published in 1900. The author, and we will talk about his problematic history along with so many other things on today's episode, went on to write 13 more full-length books set in the fantastical land of Oz. Just like the movie, this book stars a young girl from Kansas named Dorothy, who finds herself swept away to Oz after a tornado and journeys with her new friends, Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, and the Tin Woodman, on a quest to find the things that their hearts most desire. They expect to find what they are looking for with the help of the magical but elusive Wizard of Oz. But will they? On today's episode, we dive into all things The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. We touch on the differences between the book and the movie, share our personal connections to both, and reflect on the things we take away from the story as adults. We explore the fascinating parallels between life in Oz and life in 2021. We talk about our favorite characters and our favorite scenes. And I share my hot takes about Oz and imposter syndrome and Instagram filters. This conversation goes in many different directions. And if you were ever looking for proof of the power of pop culture and stories to impact our lives, I think you will find it over the next hour. Today's guests are the hosts of a podcast called Down the Yellow Brick Pod. MK and Tara are two New York City-based roommates who are enchanted by the wonderful world of Oz. On their show, which you'll hear more about on this episode, they have found a spiritual haven for connection in both preserving and reimagining all things Oz and what it means to be a good witch. On the first season of Down the Yellow Brick Pod, Tara and MK unpacked the original L. Frank Baum book, the same one we discuss over the next hour, as a sacred text. The second season, which will begin later this year, will head to Hollywoodland, exploring musical adaptations of Oz, which, of course, includes the 1939 MGM classic film. Together, Tara and MK are currently creating an Oz community over on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash pod. Since they both come from musical theater backgrounds, having met on the road as part of the Broadway Sister Act National Tour, their Patreon includes their version of Tiny Desk Oz concerts, oracle cards, zoom hangs, and more. Find their podcast, Down the Yellow Brick Pod, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on Instagram at Down the Yellow Brick Pod. Big thanks to both Tara and MK for sharing their expertise and love of Oz with me. I may not be on Tara and MK's level with staging concerts on SSR's Patreon, but it's still a great time, and I would love to see you over there. Rewards for SSR patrons include monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, virtual Patreon parties, SSR merch, video reading recaps, and more. I am having a ton of fun with Patreon so far this year, and I can't tell you how much the support for the pod there means to me. As a reminder, every dollar contributed via Patreon helps me to continue to grow and improve this independent podcast. You can join for $1, 5 or $10 a month, and each level offers a little something special. Learn more at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. If you are looking for other ways to show your love for SSR, start by following along on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. Later this week, I will be announcing all the details about the SSR Book Club, which will officially kick off in April, and I don't want you to miss a minute of that rollout. Be sure you're following along for all of the book club info so that you can join us next month. Listeners, SSR is currently just a few ratings from hitting the 300 rating mark over on Apple Podcasts. If you are loving what you're hearing on the pod, I would love for you to help me hit that milestone with a 5-star rating and or review. Leaving a rating literally takes a few seconds, and I appreciate each and every one. If you're feeling inspired, please head on over to that Purple Podcast app and tap those 5 stars. Before we start down the yellow brick road, let me remind you about what's happening at Libro FM. Libro.fm has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. There's really no downside. In fact, there's an extra upside. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro FM, that's Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Tara. Hi, MK. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. Hi.
1: Thank you so much
2: for having us, Allie. We're
0: pumped. I feel like my voice is higher than usual in my like welcome to you because we've been in touch for a long time. And so this has really just been like months in the making and listeners, you might recognize these voices from the listener. So you both like provided such great answers to my questions. And I'm just very excited to have you on for a full hour and to really like, I just said this to you before we started recording, but I'm ready for you to be the experts, like no pressure, Um, but listeners, these two have a whole podcast about all things Oz and we're talking about the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And so I can't wait to hear like about your personal experience with this like cultural milestone, touchstone giant, and to share my experience reading this book. I think we're going to have a lot of fun.
2: I can't wait to hear what came up for you (laughs) this is like the most honestly for me this is so exciting is when people devote themselves to the book for a second and then come back with how they're interpreting it I just like lean in and Mm -hmm. get so excited because that's what's so cool about this book is that the possibilities are endless for how it shows up to your personal your personal narrative and also what is going on in our world. So
0: Yeah. Well, I usually ask guests like, did you have an experience reading this book when you were a kid? <laughs> I know the answer for you is yes. So I guess my question and I'd love for you both to share is like, where did your love, your deep love for the world of Oz come from? What role did the book play in that abiding love? Mm. And maybe how did you like find each other and like connect over it?
1: Aw, <laughs> I love these questions. Take it off work wife. work wife, I'm here. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, so actually what is funny is I didn't read the book
2: until probably high school, maybe college. I missed out. And this is MK. We didn't say that. This is MK. Voice wise, I will be lower. I am Tara. <laughs> M is a princess. I'll be quite pingy for you.
1: <laughs> nice and forward. Help um, us, help us. <laughs> so I remember my earliest memory of Oz is I think it was Thanksgiving time. My aunt Carrie presented me with a gift during a family gathering. And I opened it up and it was a VHS copy of the movie. The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland from 1939. I popped it into the VCR player. Hopefully everyone remembers those. It's like a throwback now (laughs) these days. (laughs) And the second that it transformed from the black and white tones to the technicolor, I I have that moment ingrained in my brain. And so from then on out, I was obsessed with the movie. I would dress up as, as Dorothy. My best friend and I would have our little baskets with our little stuffed totos. When I was 16, the... Theater that I grew up performing with, Youth Entertainment Stage Company in California. We put on a production of *The Wizard of Oz*, and I played Dorothy and got to fly and worked with a live dog. I mean, it was over the <laughs> top; it was crazy.
0: And
2: your dream came
0: true. <laughs> stuffed
1: dog, though.
2: Let's talk about her stuffed dog. Was really upset. He was
0: really jealous. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I bet. But like, talk about turning like into Technicolor. Like, I can just yeah, picture you on the screen. like everything's color now yes (laughs) yes we
1: we mirrored that that element of the film which was really fun like i had the same costume in brown brown and and like black and white tones and then blue and and it was so magical i think i peaked when i was six
2: (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's hard to come back from it's hard
1: hard to recover from that So that was just a huge highlight. And then from there on out, as Tara and I have discovered, when you tell people you love something, they will just give you gifts. And (laughs) and anytime anyone would see a Wizard of Oz related, you know, collectible item or a book or a Barbie, that's what I would receive as a gift, which I love. So since then, I've just, it's been such a huge part of my life. And then I met Tara doing the national tour of the Broadway show Sister Act, and we got to play nuns together. And... I feel like probably one of the first days that we were rehearsing, somehow, somehow it came, came up. up like, oh, you love Wizard of Oz? Me too. Well, I
2: think a lot of it came up because we were both bookshop, uh when we'd have breaks on the tour bus. when We'd get to, you know, oh my God, like the kingdom of Target and we'd get to run rampant <laughs> like on a, just on a break. Because we were always on buses. Our tour was really fast paced. So we were traveling from city to city. So we were always dropped at like malls, targets and mm-hmm. stuff. So, and Em and I were always like, in the bookshops <laughs> and we always found ourselves to like in the kids book sh- land and like recalling memories of like the books that we read growing up but wizard of oz was like always there and we yeah. loved looking at the different covers like yeah we already were in that connection of just like oh my gosh like lo- loving to see how different artists were interpreting wizard of oz and yeah yeah
1: Yeah, immediately connected over that. So yeah, the first time I read the book was probably high school. I know I had a bunch of copies that I'd collected throughout because as we've connected over, that's our favorite thing to collect. I don't really try to collect other aspects of the Oz world because (laughs) I will spend all my money on that. Um, And there's so many fun covers and illustrators alone just for the wonderful Wizard of Oz. So finally read the book in probably high school and continued reading throughout college and i mean we'll get into it
0: i have so many thoughts
1: <laughs> as as we know yeah those are my my main main memories
0: cool Tara when did you first read the book
2: I first read the book I Em, and I actually because we looked at we were looking at like the questions that you sent us just to get like our brains going and I was like oh my god great question like when did I read it I had the great illustrated classic version do you remember those Mm -hmm. the like 90s cover art I do Treasure Island
0: yeah, my husband is like obsessed with the Great Illustrated yes, Classics. It's yes. like, that's like the thing that he drops because he's not—he was—he liked Street when he was a kid. He likes Street now, but like he's not on my level, which is For fine. Sure. But when he talks about the books that he loved as a kid he's always like do you remember the great illustrated classics and he always talks about treasure island actually (laughs) so
2: that was for him that was like we had a moment um yeah like i had a few of those and i had the wizard of oz and em and i were cracking up because i was like couldn't recall what it was what it was i was like do you remember the cover it was clearly them from the movie and they all like were like looking up at you from the cover like very kind of eerily like in a forest yellow brick road and i was really confused by that cover because she had the ruby slippers on in the cover. And then like in the book, it's the silver slippers. Obviously that we will, we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through right. the book. But I remember being confused by that. I was like, wait, 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 this is misrepresentation like as a child, but that's the first book I read. And I think that might have been abridged that version. And then I, I think I fell into a little rabbit hole as a kid too. just like, anytime we saw like a really cool edition, I would be like, can we, can I get that? Like that was something mm-hmm. I always So the book was around. And for me, like, Wizard of Oz feels like a part of my like, family, like how we embraced it. And my first costume, like as a little kid for like Halloween that I felt like myself in was Dorothy's costume. Like, I remember looking at myself in the mirror, and it was homemade, made by my own Aunt Em. Um, And it was... And my Nana, like, looked everywhere to find ruby slippers. So it was, like, this effort of the women in my life making me feel so seen and special. And I did. I felt very seen and special. I turned into, like, a different human that day because I was very shy, like, painfully shy. Always asked for permission. But when I put that dress on, I was just taking up space. and like, Mm -hmm. so happy to be alive. And, like, I just, the world, like, the world for me went to Technicolor, like, with, with that dress on. And... Yeah, and then, of course, I link my Wizard of Oz also to, like, my first one of my first theater experiences was getting to see the Wizard of Oz, and I got to go backstage because I dressed up like her. They had me come back, and it was just, like, over, like, I, there's pictures of me, and you could just see I'm, like, dying, like, I'm, like, overwhelmed Mm -hmm. in magic, so I connected that to, like, oh my gosh, there's people who, like, live in Oz. I'm watching them do that, like, I can pretend and do this, too, so yeah, that was my, like, connection way in and then the, the book being there in the movie and I love that M and I have found like we just love what comes up in this world of connection so M moved into our apartment right before my husband and I got married and part of the fam part of the fam <laughs> I love that <laughs> and um before the pandemic we were was having a good time like finding random hidden gems of the whole world of Oz and we were just noticing, like how like the obsession level it was creating in us, and like the conversations we were having were so good. And there's so much was coming up that we were like, why don't we like record these? And I honestly mm-hmm. don't know if we would have been as quickly to do it if the pandemic didn't happen yeah, right? because it we have been here we've been in our apartment this is the longest i've been in my apartment ever in my whole entire life because mm-hmm. of theater i'm usually away um i was somewhere when the pandemic started i had to fly on back i didn't even get to open the show i was in we had to stop everything come back but yeah that's like this is the longest i've ever been in this apartment and then having like this wizard of oz scenery like in our apartment now i can't tell you how comforting it's been it's been like truly pandemic medicine to have this book And this world for the both of us, it's like, it's, yeah, it's a hobby, a passion. It's like so many things that are thrown up into one.
1: Yeah. It really came at the best possible (laughs) time. I mean, we'd talked about doing this for so long and I can't imagine 2020 without it. It really got, got us through some moments and we met so many friends that we wouldn't have met. Like we have (laughs) friends now from the Oz (laughs) world getting to meet you. I mean, it's all all stems from that, which is really cool.
0: Oh, well, I just got like chills upon chills upon chills as you shared your stories. So my Wizard of Oz story yes. is obviously not as good or as interesting, but I'll share sort of how I came into this world. My stepmom actually introduced me to the Wizard of Oz. So my mom is terrified of the movie. She's very scared of the <laughs> fun, sure. So, which is valid. My dad is also, I think, like not that fond of the movie, also because of the flying monkeys. But my stepmom came into my life when I was, I think, like four And she brought with her, like, of course, all of these magical things that I hadn't been exposed to yet. And that's the beauty of step parents and of like blended families. And I have such vivid memories of her showing me this movie for the first time and just falling in love with it. And my stepmom also came from a family where they collected a lot of like porcelain dolls. And so I remember distinctly getting like the Madame Alexander Dorothy porcelain doll from her mother, because I was like now part of the family and this grandmother who, you know, I don't really use the word step-grandmother or whatever, but she had a huge movie collection. And one of the movies that she had at her house was the VHS of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And so when I would go there and be with all of my cousins, because my step-mom comes from a big family, we would watch The Wizard of Oz. And I just have like very clear memories of Oz entering my life at that particular time. I think, think I read the book, but I'm not sure like that's sort of the best I can do. I would imagine that I did because I read everything when I was a kid, but maybe it was abridged because there was a lot that I did not remember in reading this version for this podcast. So I maybe read it. As you may know, I did an episode. Well, you do know because we've talked about it. We did the episode of about Ozma of Oz, Ozma of Oz. I said Ozma. My guest said Ozma.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Ozma.
0: So I think I did that about a year ago. So that was like kind of bringing me back into the book world of Oz. So yeah, I mean, I I have not seen the movie in a long time. My husband has never seen the movie, which is still wild to me. Like, I don't know how you can be a person in the world and like... <laughs> I The Wizard of Oz. No offense to anybody who's listening who hasn't, but like, please go see it. Cause it's like, I mean, it, you just should. It, it is like sort of a pivotal classic. movie and yeah. In the world of like classic cinema, you should see it. So yeah, I I would say I came into this reading experience with like a pretty open mind. And I think what's interesting, and I love your take on this is that like, because I have seen the movie so many times over the years and I feel like the movie is so ingrained in like my, my memory and in my DNA, I had a hard time reading the book, not because I didn't like it and not because it was different, because there are some differences, but because I just like I have this overriding relationship with the movie. And so I was having some trouble like wrapping my head around the book as a separate entity, which is something that, you know, we struggle with on the podcast sometimes, because when we talk about books that have been adapted into movies, I really do try to focus on the book. But I think with The Wizard of Oz, that's a challenge, because it's the Wizard of Oz. What would you say to that? Is that like an experience that you've heard from other people? 100%. I mean, especially, yeah, I
1: agree. I relate with you so much. I don't think I, I mean, not, not having not grown up, really being exposed to the book first, even when in our first season, when we were going through the book, I had to stop myself from being like, oh yeah, in the movie, blah, 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 because it's just ingrained. And I'd say most people see it as a kid, not everyone, but- I, I bet most people see that movie before the book. I don't think you're alone at all in that.
2: <laughs> no, and like, yeah, that, that that's so true. And it's actually so comforting to hear like Ozma, like, because mm-hmm. that is something that would happen if you didn't have like pop culture references. Like when you're little, like what, like Hermione, like mm-hmm. all like the ways we couldn't say her name for a while on the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, Like, it's kind of amazing to have those moments too. And I do feel like you get... Robbed a little bit of that with the book because mm-hmm. we've heard everything except like we will talk like Kaliidas, kaleidas We don't know. We don't know. There's some like stuff that will come up in the book that's not in the movie. But yeah, you're you're 100 right. It is hard. I'm like trying to think of like what do I see in my brain when I read the book. I feel like I I go into like Anne with an E, mm-hmm. Anne of great Gables, mm-hmm. Land Netflix a little bit like in my brain of trying to like really rewrite a different more grounded I guess version of Oz in my brain as I'm tra- as reading the book and did you hear they announced a movie there's a movie a new version a new version that just got announced like three days ago I did
0: not hear that wow so we are our timing <laughs> three We're, days like, ago
2: like,
0: here on SSR <laughs> yes. is there any more information about like of course my first question is like who's in it let is me
2: there? I just want to make sure I credit yeah oh I have it up great I have it
0: up I have it it's up it's right there it's right there
2: <laughs> Nicole Castle, and I hope I'm saying her name right. She's the Watchmen director. Hmm. She has inherited the story. And (laughs) from what I'm gathering, there's not a lot released. There's just like a couple quotes here and there. A lot of hesitancy coming from reporters of just like, oh, here it goes. Because as we know, like the recent Oz attempts have kind of fallen short with like Oz the Great and Powerful in 2013. But she has said it's not we're gonna take elements from MGM, but it's gonna go back to the book, which no one really has done that. Oz the Great mm-hmm. and Powerful kind of ignored the books, which was baffling to me. And I think, I mean, this this director is pretty um, known for, I mean, she does darker things, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, obviously the Watchmen's dark, but I'm curious to see what this is gonna be. I'm <laughs> like, we can't go too dark. Don't go too Not dark. Not too edgy. Not yeah. too edgy. Cause I don't think it allows for it. Like I don't think the world of Oz allows you to go too too dark. Honestly, I think Oz is such a great parallel universe to where we are in America right now. Like mm-hmm. it just it could t- it's like a, a a land for people who don't quite fit in, but there's also this like power that wants to kind of make everyone conform. That's there. So I'm like that's mm-hmm. really interesting. So if there's ways we can like I don't know connect that dot more cuz that's what I think we're all living through right now. Yeah. Well, and if I
0: had to guess, and this is also what I would hope, I would imagine that there's going to be like a very diverse cast. Like I would Mm -hmm. imagine that this is an example of reimagining a cast with people that come from a variety of backgrounds. Hopefully lots of BIPOC folks will be in it. And I, I would imagine that like, that's, I hope that a lot of those sort of remakes and new adaptations or new versions of older adaptations that we're getting are going to be moving in that direction. I sort of feel like you, why, I don't know why anybody would not do that or why anybody would seek out the rights to a movie mm-hmm. to do again without that intention. So I will definitely be keeping an eye on that and we'll have to stay in touch. Like maybe yes. we'll have to talk again yes. once that movie comes we'll out. Do. Yes. Yeah. So a couple of quick, like history points yeah. before we get into this. So The book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, was published in 1900 written by the American author L. Frank Baum. Um, I thought it was an interesting fact that he assembled the book by hand and gave it to his sister first. Like what a sweet little story. I am not going to go any further on L. Frank Baum without acknowledging that there's some ugly stuff with him because this is SSR and we're not going to overlook that. So in 1890, he wrote a very inflammatory editorial promoting racism against Native peoples. I believe it was like only a few days later that the at Wounded Knee took place. So I think like, I want to preface all of this by saying that this is an author who is problematic, has some affiliations that I certainly do not support that this podcast does not support. And that is where we're going to leave that because I'm sure that there are a lot of other skeletons in his closet. And I'm not here to celebrate him as a guy because I don't, believe that any of that is okay but we're going to focus on his book which has burned this whole cultural movement is there anything else that you guys
2: would add to that we have an episode if people are interested because we're with you ali we want to hold up his stains of his past as much as what he also contributed to this world so we have an episode that's on Al frank Baum and the massacre of wounded knee as well as a follow-up episode with some other racial writing so people are interested in witnessing those being held under a very interrogative eye Those are available. So they could head there on our podcast.
0: Yeah, I'll link to those episodes in the show notes for this one. So we won't talk about the guy anymore. Let's just (laughs) talk about the world. We're good. Yeah, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to talk about him. Like, this is cool. What he made in this particular situation is cool. So, A couple of like big differences between the book and the movie. There are a handful of them. And I'll say ahead of time, like, I think what I want to do with this episode and and with this conversation is to sort of paint in broader strokes, because I do think so many people know the movie so well, know this world so well. And I don't think that getting like super granular with the plot details of the book is going to resonate with a lot of people. I think what's cool about this episode is that so many people are going to be able to listen to it, even if they haven't read the book, and they're going to be able to follow what we're talking about. And you both have like so much knowledge about this world. So I think broad strokes is going to be the way to go. Technicolor broad strokes, (laughs) obviously. So a couple big differences that I noted, as you mentioned, the shoes. (laughs) The shoes are big. So in the movie, of course, it's the ruby slippers. And in the book, it's silver sparkly slippers. I didn't find anything about like why that was. I would imagine it's because the ruby slippers made for better Movie magic, mm-hmm. but I guess the silver sparkly was just like the beginning of the magic in the book.
1: One hundred percent. I mean, I think you nailed it on the head. I know that they tried with Judy, didn't they? Try silver slippers at first. I think they, I think
2: they, they made them first, and they just weren't picking up on the yellow. With brick. the color, yeah, it just wasn't hot. popping. They weren't lit. <laughs> they weren't lit. Yeah. Not lit enough, Judy. No. Take them on exactly <laughs> Yeah, they just wanted them to pop. But yeah, yeah, I I think there's a lot of like gold and silver crossovers Mm -hmm. throughout the book. So I think there was a theme in the book of showing like the golden cap will come up later of having these like really cool magical items that were, yeah, gold and silver.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Of course, especially if you like me grew up with like a porcelain doll with red sparkly shoes on and (laughs) also had your own. Dorothy red sparkly shoes, which I'm pretty sure I had. Yes. we need to establish that that was not how this all started. But another <laughs> no. big difference is that Oz in the book is a real place that she travels yes. to. Yes, in a cyclone. This is not a dream that she wakes up from at the end of the movie and just finds that she has been, you know, like she's been through the the cyclone and now it's over and she's awake in her bed and mm-hmm. nothing happened in the book she actually travels to a land of oz and i think the implication is that she's there for a couple of months and i i wonder like why i have all these questions about like why why did the m- movie producers or the the screenwriters of the adaptation decide that having it be a fantasy was somehow like more interesting than it being a real place because to me the idea that she actually travels there is like way more interesting and more fantastical but i i don't know i guess In the movie, you see that, of course, like the people that work at her aunt and uncle's farm are like reflected in the scarecrow and the tin man and the lion so I I don't know I just don't know which I prefer what do you think
2: I can add one little quick thing in technically and I might be a little murky because this is where I am deep in research right now as we're preparing for our season two which is all on the MGM musical and other musical adaptations so actually the first mu- musical adaptation was 1902 there was this musical extravaganza that L. Frank Baum had a big thing to do with and also had to like kind of like surrender it over to these like these like vaudeville guys who like you know (laughs) they completely changed everything and i think in somewhere along the lines of when it was touring as the musical extravaganza which it was it toured for years it was like a Mm -hmm. huge production there was a cast b cast c cast like it was all over the place i think the fantasy element was introduced in there Mm -hmm. there are things that the movie did pull from like earlier um iterations of the Wizard of Oz, whether it be the silent films or this musical extravagance. And I think that's when the fantasy element went in. I think as people could, they wanted to make it more adult friendly and open to, and I think people would buy that more. Maybe right. that's where it came from, but I love that it's a real place in the books. Yeah. I like, and I also love that that kind of is the separating for me, that is the distinct separation between yeah. the book and the movie. The movie you have her yeah you have her having this amazing parallel dream realization and then the book it's actually this place that she's wondering if she can return to and then we see in future books because the Oz book doesn't end with that it has a whole series 14 books by Al Frank Baum and then the famous 40 is the whole books that are considered within the world of Mm -hmm. Oz the royal historians if you will that's what they (laughs) called themselves uh, two other writers right jack snow and ruth, ruth plumley Tom- thompson. thompson yeah they took over but yeah what would you say
1: oh my gosh i mean i'm with you ali i feel like growing up as a kid even though they said that it was a dream or it was inferred i didn't believe that it was a dream i still thought she yeah. actually traveled there and that all the right. adults in her life were just like not down with her imagination they were gaslighting, gaslighting, they were her, gaslighting her and i she loved- went they didn't believe her <laughs> And I loved that in the movie, they added Hickory, Hunk Zeke, who do, as you said, they mirror the lion Tin man and scarecrow, all of these characters in her life in Kansas mirror in Oz, but I still believed
0: that, that it was a real place. When I was reading the book, I was like, okay, at the end, are we going to find out that she, this -hmm. was all a dream, but no, it was real. And it does lend itself to a much stronger fairy tale vibe. And in a lot of the reviews and reflections that I read about the book, as I prepared to talk to you both today there's this sort of prevailing theme that The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is the original American fairy tale. Like it's the first Mm -hmm. fairy tale that's really representative of the American population, especially because there are like specific locations mentioned, Kansas, Omaha, it really like reflects the struggles of American people. Dorothy lives on a farm, like her family is struggling. This provides a fantasy outlet for her. Um, so I did, I did like the fact that this felt like much more of a fairy tale. So one of the things that you asked when we first jumped on was like, what was the thing that jumped out most to me? So I guess I'll start there because we are going to paint in broad stroke, And I think that this is true of the movie as well. But it jumped out to me more in the book. And maybe it's because I'm a grown up. I don't know. But I think the sense of like, what you are looking for in your life, what you think you need, what you think you are lacking in, you probably have already. And I think I knew to look for it in the book, obviously, because I've seen the movie and I know that like the scarecrow was always smarter than he thought. And the tin man who in the book is the tin woodman always had some heart and the lion was always braver than he thought. So I was looking for them to show those moments, but we get more of that in the book. Whereas in the movie, it's like, And correct me if I'm wrong, because it has been a while. But I feel like in the movie, it's much more that at the end, the Wizard of Oz is like, oh, yes, you had all of these things within you all the time. In the book, we actually see all of these moments where the lion is brave, where the scarecrow is smart, where the Tin Man is loving and cares about other beings. And so I thought that that was really special and gave me a lot to think about as I was going through.
2: I love that. Mm. I've been thinking about that actually a lot with like, Because I'm rereading it actually right now for our Instagram. We're doing some like sacred practices in the world of Oz. And I've been thinking about sometimes it takes us to like, uh, how do I put this? Lack sometimes leads us like when we feel like we're lacking something. That gives us a path. And then I feel like it's the question when we get, when we feel complete or full, like what is the realization of having that? And we witness these these guys go <laughs> to the Emerald City and they go and then they get sent to the Wicked Witch of the West's castle. And then they come back and still like, no one can really give what they want to them. But they still, even after like the wizard admits to them, I cannot give you these things. I'm a fraud. I'm a phony. This is all a scam. And they still go like, but we mm-hmm. we need you to right. do something. And it that to me also hits on like the power of ritual in a really interesting way of just like needing to have a physical expression for the things that we have inside of us. Like feel it, see it, touch it, like visceral, or it really is like your mind can go in this questioning place. Like, is it real? So I think that has been sticking out to me a lot in this recent reread of it. And the, yeah, that like, oh, man, how much does my lack make me do something? I've been thinking about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, this theme, it always, like, makes me a little teary-eyed. It's so it's <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. Same. And I feel like, I, I I agree in the book, we get those really cool moments. Like, the Scarecrow is one of my favorite characters, and throughout, he's always coming up with these puns, these very <laughs> witty puns. <laughs> yeah. um, or like, hey, we should probably do this to solve this problem yeah. that no one else thought of. Right. And... I feel like we all have those moments in our life where it's like, oh, like on the, on our, in our uh, season, a lot of the time we would make these connections to our own life of, oh, I teach guitar, but like, uh, I don't know. Am I good enough? Uh, maybe I, yeah. I don't know when really, you know, you have it inside of you. And it, I think it also comes to believing in yourself a little bit more and maybe not always needing that validation, external validation, perhaps.
2: yeah.
0: I feel like this was maybe like the first ever mention of imposter syndrome. Yes. Yes. They all feel a
2: huge level of that. The only one who's kind of grounded is Dorothy Mm -hmm. because hers is like tangible. It's not something that it's like but she's realizing also she's building a home within her within herself as she's going along but yeah like for it's that's that's so true imposter syndrome yeah
0: (laughs) yeah like am I brave enough no I'm not brave enough am I smart enough no I'm not smart enough do I understand how to care about people enough there's no way but of course they all do already have that within them and also I think there's something just to the point of like just by knowing that you need something like for example i think the the tin man is a great example the fact that he like knows that he wants a heart already mm-hmm. says that he has a right. heart and the scarecrow like he knows that it's important that he has a brain that's because he already mm-hmm. has a brain and i think maybe it's a little bit more of a stretch with the lion but maybe not because like in order to want courage you kind of already have to be brave to begin with so i think that there's something there as well and i i wonder and i haven't really thought about this very much but i'm sure you both have dorothy is the only girl the only woman yes. of this traveling trio mm-hmm. and, dorothy and bros. yeah like, <laughs> the bros, exactly like when i was in high school i only had guy friends and i thought that made me very cool and i would have, like <laughs> her just like going on the journey with my guy friends yes but you just mentioned tara that like she's the only one who's grounded <laughs> and yeah I wonder if you in the course of all the conversations that you've had about this world, if there's been anything that's come up about like, like, why, why is Dorothy, or how is Dorothy maybe portrayed differently as the only girl character within this, these lead personalities in this world, like what what makes her different, what makes her desire different. Is it the fact that she's more grounded? And at the same time, to me, I'm like, is she just... There's a part of me, like, my feminist self. I'm like, is she just feeding the egos of these other characters, like, telling them that they can do it when she sort of is the one who gets what she wants last, which feels like very to life. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. There's a moment that we, I think, paused with when we were unpacking the chapter where they do get their... Like, the lion drinks the liquid courage. They all get their versions of gifts from the wizard. And they're all, like... Their egos are inflating. Mm-hmm. And she was right. literally just like yeah. standing there, like, right. When do I get to go? I, home? It just like the shock of it had to yeah. be so much. I freaking love Dorothy so much. And I grow to love her so much every single time. Cause I really think she is just so full of hope. And that's what is so attractive about her. Like she just keeps going forward. Even when she releases t- like she'll let herself cry and process, which I think that's beautiful, that that we get to witness those moments of her have a little emotional breakdowns and I don't see them as weakness in the book. And mm-hmm. also Scarecrow Lion and Tin Man don't see them as weakness. They're very caring and they give her space. I mean, like Scarecrow and Tin Woodman just like literally stand there and watch her <laughs> while she sleeps, but it's like not yeah. creepy because they're just protecting her and they, they can't sleep. So yeah. they just like chill there. And there's something really cool about how these three older men like mm. older in a sense of like they're not kids mm. like like she's a kid are in a really wholesome relationship with this young girl and will do, and they will do anything to get her home and yeah she just is we always are like wow she's so meta uh, in certain moments like when she's in the tornado she literally is breathing <laughs> I was like girl that's Very <laughs> So we've talked about that too, of like how she's already, cause we meet her on a farm that's gray and that's pretty much all we get. But I was like, what has she been through before in her life that has led her to this like mm. self-groundedness where she knows that she can get herself out of anything. And we always go back to like how she whips out Girl Scout tricks, like nobody's business. <laughs> like she's like, yeah, I got the fire. We're like, you've got yeah. the fire, Dorothy, right. like. All right, girl. She's supposed to be like seven, yeah. eight. Like, that's right, huge. Right. So she just, I'm always so impressed with her um, on the journey. And also like with the Wicked Witches and Good Witch, we're obsessed with all the mm-hmm. witch stuff. That's something that we both love so much. I love the Good Witches being there. And she sees like, she gets like a feminine role model mm-hmm. that you can be like, you can be a woman and be okay. Like mm-hmm. you can be safe as a woman is what the message I feel like I get from the good witches and also with the wicked, witches, kind of like, I think what bomb did is be like, all right, we're going to erase that. Women in power are evil. Like we're going to show you women in power who are strong and capable and good and kind and compassionate. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool too, that she gets to see what she can be through them. Yeah. You also have me thinking about how Dorothy gets
1: her desire last <laughs> It's actually interesting, the wizard as a male (laughs) character sort of like grants, grants, you know, the three guys, their desires, which he didn't really do much. He was like, here's some liquid. He's the ultimate con man. Ultimate con man. And he actually can't help Dorothy at all. You know, he can't at all. He fails to where a strong, as we mentioned, female presence. Glinda actually has to come in and help and sort of give her that power. And I also think like, Dorothy had the most power all along that line of Oh, well, you could have gone home because of the shoes this whole time. But you just didn't know which kind of makes me mad sometimes. I'm like, why didn't you tell her that earlier? It's interesting. She she actually has the power more power than these guys the entire time. But maybe it took this journey for her to actually harness it or become aware of it.
0: It's interesting. Yeah. And then she has the moment where she's like, oh, well, I could have gone home this whole time. But like, good thing I didn't know that because then I could help my friends get what they wanted. And I think that there's like a very selfless message in that and probably like, I I think probably in like 2021 feminism, that's something that we could go Mm -hmm. down a rabbit hole about like how problematic that is that like, why should you have to like, go through this whole struggle just so that you can (laughs) like help three dudes get something that they had all along. That's not the point because this is a beautiful like American fairy tale. And I'm not going to go there because I think we all know what I'm trying to say. I'd love to know who your favorite characters are.
1: Oh, I mean, I have a soft spot for the scarecrow embarrassing I think in the movie I like had a crush on Ray Bolger (laughs) so when I read the book and you know he's the first friend that Dorothy meets and makes um I just think he's so like honest and humble and silly and I love their bond I love their friendship so he's I have a soft spot for him
2: mine is definitely the good witch of the north I love her so much okay um in her like white glittering dress and her (laughs) weird tricks that she has like her magic is like definitely, like, she needs an upgrade, but she's still, like, you know, whipping the chalkboards out of hats, and she's just, I really, really love her motherly elder presence she brings right away to the world of Oz, and this, like, maternal grandmothery energy that Dorothy just instantly feels, like, cozy and safe in. I also have so many theories about her. I think she's the master manipulator of everything. Like, I think she's Brought, made the storm I think she wanted Dorothy to come here mm-hmm. I really think she's behind it all because she also just fades into the background after and she doesn't really answer some questions she's like you gotta I'm not gonna tell then, you da, da, da. you yeah. gotta answer these for yourself so I think she's actually kind of a great paternal character of uh, or maternal character of giving Dorothy space to not be taken care of in this moment because Dorothy taking care of herself is gonna be far more valuable
0: Oh, I love all of that. Are you are you gonna do a season about Wicked? Are you gonna touch on Wicked at any point?
2: Oh yeah. Season yeah. three. Get so, ready. Yeah, I mean, we're probably yeah, we're gonna go back and finish up all the bomb books and then like unpack like Dorothy Must Die, Danielle Page's series and yeah. Wicked, because they're both so I mean, full, no. like they're lush worlds in themselves.
1: That's the thing. We'll never be done. There's so There's many so fun much. iterations and people using their creativity to reimagine this world, this universal story. It's it's so fun.
2: I will say like right now, the poppy fields are like what are speaking to me so much in terms of like, I've really been like looking at them for like, oh my God, like as a big metaphorical image of like, what do you get lured by that isn't good for you? And I think there's so much of that mm. right now. And I also asked myself that too. I'm like, where are you putting up a poppy field where it's like, you actually don't believe that mm. or you don't, that's not your truth. It's maybe a disguised version, like a more palatable version of your truth that you think people will like. That has been coming up for me so much. Mm. I'm like, I'm a such a fan of the poppy field message, which is so subtle, but it's so clear in the book. Mm-hmm. that i reread it i was like yeah he's he doesn't that's the thing with bomb i will give him always props for this he doesn't do like a hit over the head he's <laughs> just like here's here's some subtle wisdom that really like it gets in our systems and i think that's what is so cool is we get to have these realizations it doesn't get hit over the head from a book it's not preached at us so we get to have them for ourselves and go oh my gosh mm-hmm. this book is like making me have fireworks in my brain over all these things but the poppy fields right now i think are is interesting same thing with emerald city emerald city is just the larger version of the poppy field of like being attracted to like bigger meaning better and you know Mm -hmm. the glamour of the city i was telling telling em i'm diving into like old hollywood stories and like old hollywood is the emerald city everyone looked fabulous but there's so much bullshit. (laughs) so much (laughs) happening that is so horrifying, but you would never know because people are in bold lips looking amazing <laughs> and <laughs> you would never know. And I was like, these themes are everywhere at all times with our Instagram culture, TikTok yeah. culture now with like how we, we really get to fashion, how we present ourselves. Mm. But is that our truth? Like I always, I feel like I'm daily asking myself that question as I don't know how to do the online world and not be truthful, but also I'm like, what do I want to be public and private? It's like all these questions that Mm. feel like a poppy field in some way.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, and, and I actually, I think it's worth noting one of the things you just mentioned about the Emerald city, which is also different in the book versus the movie. Yes, Mm -hmm. The Emerald city is not actually Emerald in Alcantan's original conception of this story so when the travelers as they're called arrive to the emerald city the gatekeeper gives them sort of like fits them with these special glasses and he tells them that everybody has to wear them because otherwise you'll be blinded by like how sparkly and actually emerald the city is and so of course they listen to him because like why wouldn't they (laughs) yeah and so they put them on and then they take them off when they leave and then when they come back because they have successfully completed their mission and now they're going to be able to get what they want from the wizard they put them back on but they find out that the reason that everybody has to wear these glasses is so that everything looks like it's green because it's not actually which is pretty wild and i sort of want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier because i have a feeling that this speaks to that which is the extent to which this book kind of speaks to like where we are right now. And I sort of want to give you an opportunity to like go off on that because I feel <laughs> like you have a lot of thoughts. And it's not really something that I connected to as much when I was reading, but now that we're talking about it, I I see it more. And so, yeah, tell me more about that. Tell me more about how you see this world and this book, especially mirroring life in 2020, 2021.
1: Oh my gosh. The conversation about the green glasses <laughs> is my favorite ongoing piece from our season and even just still today we'll bring it up it is such a deep metaphor i believe that can directly relate to 2020 of i felt like in 2020 everything was kind of burning and it was kind of like we are sort of seeing behind the curtain and seeing what is corrupt in our country or things that do actually need to change and you kind of have a choice do you want to take the glasses off or do you want to keep them on because that's something we also discovered in the reread is sometimes you have to leave the glasses on or sometimes we leave them on out of comfort or fear of taking them off so that that hit hard with 2020 with just the virus with uh you know systemic racism just wanting to actually see things for what they are and taking that opportunity to to not see to not give into the bullshit (laughs) to not you know just believe this facade I'd rather I'd rather see a non-green emerald city for what it is even though it's not going to be a shiny and glamorous like that's that's a lie that's that's not true
2: yeah I mean I feel like this year 2020-21 2020 2021. I feel like it's just like an extensional, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's yeah. a it never it's a what's a run-on sentence yeah. of a year it's been the year of like shattering the green glasses and I, I feel pretty confident in never putting them back on mm-hmm. um, and so it's like it's kind of like now if I'm doing that the yellow brick road doesn't make sense I have to now put my own yellow brick road into place which that is timely like and that's labor but it's worth it because it's like that yellow brick road doesn't allow everybody to walk down it so like what is the point of doing that yellow brick road the history of the emerald city too is just so just to give a little context bomb was really inspired by the 1893 world's fair which was in chicago and they had this epic city you can walk in and just be enchanted by called the white city of all things, the white city. And it was white. <laughs> everything was white. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure it was all white people there too. I'm sure mm-hmm. White, white, mm-hmm. White. it was just, yeah. it was white and everything was, um, sparkling and shimmering and just like majestic and like huge. And there's a few in Chicago, I believe it's the, um, museum of arts and sciences is still part of that original, um, mm-hmm. facade, but most of it was built so cheaply, flimsily, that like, they, you know, easy to kind of just like knock down once the World Fair was over, but it gives this presence of like, I'm here to stay, you know, just that like, it exerts something that it's not. And that even like Bomb being inspired by this like electric world of lights and, you know, brightness, it still was something that was so temporary. And I think that's what is cool right now is like, we can question these things that feel permanent. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not. And like, I, I think it's really great that, this past year, I think, has made us all um, people who are choosing, I think, to participate more in like an al- an alternate way of existing in this country, because it's just not working. Like, it's not working. We have to find new ways. Is yeah. that, um yeah, we can be in the questions a little bit more. We can be in like, this is flimsy. Like, let's learn how to build better. But yeah, Emerald City, poppy fields, all of those. Endless things. metaphors. Endless. <laughs> endless.
0: I mean, it's like an Instagram filter. Hundred, oh, yeah, like it, yeah, yeah. putting an Instagram filter on your face. It was really, really interesting to have that realization of like, oh no, this was not green. Like, this was just normal life. And then it, it made me think of the movie too, you know, of course, where you go from like these sepia tones to technicolor. And then in the world of the book, it's like, oh no, everything's in color until it's green. And then it's an emerald city. But no, I think that those points about how this mirrors contemporary life, those are really interesting points. And when I read the book again, I'll have to um do it with that thought in mind because I was just like so absorbed in the fairy tale element of it that I don't think I was making as many real world connections as I often do in books that feel less fairy tale esque. Mm. One point that I also wanted to bring up before we start to close is the introduction in the edition of the book that I have from the author, and it's probably in a lot of the editions, but he talks about how um he's so tired of books that moralize to children. Yeah. And he wanted to write a book that was just about fun. And that speaks to a conversation that we have on the podcast a lot because I've had guests that have very strong feelings in either direction. I have listeners that have very strong feelings in either direction. There have been a lot of enthusiastic debates on Mm -hmm. SSR social media about like, is it the responsibility of a YA or middle grade author to teach young readers a lesson? Or is it enough for them just to have fun? And if the idea is just to have fun, but there's content in the book that might impart a problematic or damaging or offensive message is that on the author if what they were doing was the whole time just like trying to build something that's fun and enjoyable for kids so I did think it was interesting that the author of this book lays out like oh no I'm not trying to teach you anything like I just want you to have fun so I thought that that was kind of refreshing I was like okay so I know what your goal is here like I don't have to wonder but I did think it was interesting that at the same time like he very clearly has laid out like these are the two witches that are good and like these are the two witches that are evil Mm -hmm. so I thought Mm -hmm. like it's sort of mixed messages for me there and is that something that you talked
2: about at all yes Mm -hmm. that intro is so fascinating Mm because I do think it was groundbreaking at the time I don't think anyone was doing that like Mm -hmm. writing an intro and trying to like drop the whole European fairy tale moral right. code part of it and just give children a true escape. But like, he doesn't really do his, we we talk about like his words are not really honored. He also says like, <laughs> it'll be free of bloodshed. No, there's a lot of bloodshed. Lots of violence.
0: So violent. Like there's so many <laughs> small animals killed in this book yeah. that I was like, this is yeah. this is pretty dark yeah tin woodman tin is, a, woodman psycho. is he's a psycho
2: no he's like he's yeah. like he has a dr jekyll mr hyde yes, vibe like 100. he will snap yeah. into vigilante service in a in a <laughs> totally. second totally. but yeah like mm. the intro is really for the time like that i think he uses like modern wonder tales um and we interpret that too to be like well what are our modern wonder tales mm-hmm. what are the books right now who are like starting with an intro that's like I'm going to do something different, Mm -hmm. like that you haven't seen before, because that's kind of what he was doing. Um, I don't really know how conscious he really was of how American this book would be. I mean, this, I know we're not really talking about him too much, but his whole life was so American. Mm -hmm. In the fact that he just had like a million trades because he had to (laughs) survive. And he was also an imaginative, inventive guy. So all that just like makes sense being like tossed up into this fantasy world like being a traveling salesman having a life always on the go and like what is home all of that just being thrown in so i i think it's just so interesting that he took the time to write that because i think he knew he had to get people like on board and like mm-hmm. we have to say the book was banned a lot like especially in middle america um especially with them like you know the presence of good witches startled right. a lot of people yeah. And so he also knew had risks. He knew there was risks in this book. And we always have to mention her because I feel like we're <laughs> doing a huge disservice if we don't. His mother-in-law, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, is everything. If you want a deep dive of a, like a early progressive of the 1800s who Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote out of history because she was so forward in her views um mm-hmm. she was an abolitionist she was also like which is insane she was so for native american rights so it's interesting that bomb mm-hmm. had this whole shitty history that just yeah. sucks like when we read it it just sucks to read and see like yeah. you know this guy who wrote this great book damn it like it just sucks
0: well i thought he was a pretty open feminist wasn't he yes like, mm-hmm. he himself was especially because of, of the her time, because of right. her right he was like if, which again makes this whole other fucked up part of his personal history feel very confusing, confusing. so confusing yeah.
2: and but she, her presence in his life is why he was a feminist 100 that's why we have to say her name like matilda Jocelyn yeah. gage she's yeah. also like notoriously like an aoc she's got three initials Yeah. she's amazing love that she, about her so cool please research her because yeah. like she's credited by a lot as like the mother of Oz because without mm-hmm. her he would not have written this book mm-hmm. he also wouldn't have had his forward feminist views right
1: yeah and we always talk about how all, all of these metaphors or wisdom that we glean from Oz we're we're always like I bet he didn't actually didn't know. mean that. I don't like think he meant that. the poppy field <laughs> in Emerald City he probably you know he wasn't actually trying to convey any lessons he could have but he was a salesman though are like, I like don't he knew know. how to pitch things like yeah. that's why
2: i think he knew what he was doing a little bit <laughs> a little
1: yeah but i still i mean i didn't read it as a kid but i i still feel like even though it's mostly fun you can glean so much especially like Dorothy as a role model, especially whatever gender you are as a child, like she can inspire you so much, even though he's not trying to teach you anything.
2: She inspired me this year. Like I need it, Dorothy, I needed to see some young kid wake up and be like, I have no idea how we're gonna get somewhere, but I'm gonna go. Yeah, I think there's a quote where she's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I just know I have to get somewhere. There's like some yeah. like elusive quote, but I'm like, you know what? Sometimes that's all we have. Wisdom. <laughs> that is all we have.
0: Well, there's a quote on the back of my edition that says, never give up. No one knows what's going to happen next. I love, it I love yeah, that. That's great. Yeah. I feel like if I were somebody who knew how to cross stitch, I would like cross stitch. <laughs> yes. Um, So I feel like I know what your answer to this question is going to be, but I'd love to hear you sort of distill it and capture it. You've obviously interacted with this book many times over the years since your first time reading it. So I'd love your thoughts on like how the book continues to hold up over the years, or if there are ways in which it disappoints you. The answer is a little bit more like layered and complicated for you since you've read it multiple times. Most of the time when I ask this question of guests, it's like, did you like this book more or less than the first time you read it? Did it hold up or did it disappoint you? So I think, obviously, there's more layers to this for you. So I just love your thoughts on like how the experience with the book in particular has evolved over your years of growing in your love for us.
1: I mean, I yeah, we're biased. <laughs> but <laughs> I do I would highly recommend anyone of any age to read this book. I think the themes, even more so perhaps than the film, are are just so universal. Everything that we were chatting about of searching for something that's already inside of you, the meaning of home. I think it's written in a simple way that actually almost inspires the reader to sift deeper. So I think it's it's a short read and you can get so much out of it. I also, it's a book that I realize I wanna read like every year because all of these connections that we made in the past year And that we're making today it's going to be different next year it's going to be different in five years depending on where i am in my life and going back to what we mentioned about it being one of the first american or the first american fairy tale this was the first time i had ever read it through that lens and I really do think it, even though it's not a history lesson, it is a time capsule of 1900, of the late 1800s. Of... Timeless,
2: too. It's in timeless. A, in a way. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it was written so long ago. And yet I feel like a, a child could read it today and think it was written today. So I definitely think it will endure forever.
2: I really do. I love what M just said because I think that's what's so cool about Oz. There's no one alive today who did not, was not born into a world where Oz did not exist. I mean, that, yeah. we can't say that about much in pop culture. Like Star Wars, we're getting there. Like that'll probably mm-hmm. be something our lifetime will witness, but we don't really have something. This unifying in a um, mm. aesthetic way in so many ways that I think is so cool. Like I can ask my nana, I can ask my aunt what mm-hmm. they think, and they have they have opinions, and that's what's so cool. And usually they're strong opinions, <laughs> even if it is like your husband be like, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Like there is like a he has to own that he hasn't seen this movie, <laughs> and what does that mean? this like yeah, I what does that
1: mean? But
2: like that's what's so 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 cool about it. It has this intergenerational connection, and like. Rereading it too, I'm with M. Like one of the most startling things that I noticed this first reread with M for the podcast was she also, I'm obsessed with the moment when she transforms into the gingham. That's something that's also not in Mm. the movie she's not in the gingham right away she gets her information from the good witch she realizes what she has to do she goes back into her little house she sees a clean dress which is her gingham dress and she goes okay i'm gonna put this on she puts the shoes on and she's feeling herself Mm -hmm. like it's a little girl playing dress up and it's so precious and sweet and she locks her door of her house and puts her key in her pocket and Mm. that key is with her the whole Mm. time. The fact that I had, I have chills just thinking that Like her home is like on her side the whole time. Like, it's not really that far away. And like, I never would have realized that moment. Like I, that was something that I never like read into before. So there's always these like little gems that just come on up. And like the whole fact that we're like talking about poppy fields and Emerald cities, this like also just seeing in American culture, we, we value aesthetics. This book shows you how we value aesthetics. You can't start an Instagram now without being like, "What? What is my color brand?" Like you have to like know all these things about you. Yeah. Like we are oh, we are like so much and like and now I'm now I'm asking myself why? Why do we value aesthetics okay. so much? What what comfort does that give us? Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm starting to ask myself, and that is all rooted in this book. And I'm I'm just excited that we've chosen to have like a relationship with one specific thing in it in an age where you can just be inundated with. Content, just right. like you mm-hmm. know, there's all uh, there's always something. I'm just sent me another podcast to listen to, and like yeah. my breath always goes <laughs> when I like get another podcast to listen to. I like right. die a little on the yeah, inside, but I course. also get excited. Yeah. It's like a nice <laughs> mix of excited and I'm dying on the inside. So I'm like, when, <laughs> when when do I have time? I to would, do all of it if I didn't have
1: a job, I would still I would not listen. have time. No, to, lo- to no, listen no, to
2: every. Totally. No, it's just it's yeah. all too much. So it feels nice to have this one thing that we will really, really know and understand and continually. Being blown away by it. And like, even like you calling us experts today made me go, ah, because we're like, we totally feel like we're in kindergarten class, like when we listen to like Oz experts, like talk. And we were lucky we have a few Oz experts who are like Mm -hmm. our friends now. And like, we can just like listen to and just be so excited about. But something we're embracing is like, you know what, like, Baum would say he was a royal historian of Oz. And then that's what the inheritors of the the book world would say, I'm the royal historian of Oz. And we're like, okay, maybe we're the royal revisionists of Oz. I love that. Yeah, and I think that's what the world needs to stay alive. Like, mm-hmm. there's been so much hiding of, of L. Frank Baum's past. Like, sure. that's been hidden mm-hmm. from so many of his, like, anthologies of Bios, I just read another book, no mention of it. I'm reading a book called um, Oz Before the Rainbow, which is all about the musical extravaganza. And there's a little like backstory on Baum. And there's no mention of like his horrible, like past. And I think that's important that we start showing these things because i also think we have this idea of like humans are either good or evil and it's just not the case humans are complicated as anything mm. and also influenced by their environments like we said Baum would not be a feminist i don't think without his mother-in-law and also if he wasn't you know like his situation also allowed him to say these really awful racist things so it's just it's so i just really want to hold all of this and learn how we can hold it all without feeling on un- like being okay with the uncomfort the discomfort of it mm. i think is important yeah, I think we need both. The magic yes. of this tale and the reality of this author who yeah. created it. And also, like, what makes that problematic in Oz, too. Because we've noticed stuff, like, yes. that's very problematic True. in the world of Oz. Um, yeah. But I think it is worth keeping it alive. And I think it's worth, pe- like, so many people love this world. It's such a beautiful escape for people.
1: And an accepting... World, yeah, for sure. Like yeah. we loved the
2: word, the word queer. It's everywhere. Throughout. Queer is everywhere, all over, right? Queers like in, cool. yeah. yeah, yeah. And I love that. Like now, today, just seeing like the word queer everywhere, I'm like, this Oz feels like it's this like haven for people haven. who are quote unquote different, like in our normalized American version of like what that means, like. It was yeah. a haven for people who identified in a queer way as yeah. a witch, like all of that. And that continues so cool. to more extreme levels in the rest of the book. Yes. If you
1: read yes. those ever, <laughs> get ready.
0: <laughs> well, I noticed the the use of the word queer too, and it made me think about just like the evolution of language and yeah. how. Yes, yeah. If I'd read this book when I was younger... And this is a terrible thing, but for many years, the word queer was derogatory right, yeah. and was not a word that was said. And and if you saw that, you'd be like, I don't know, what, you know, in what way is this being used? Right. And I'm so happy that reading this in 2021, <laughs> queer is a word that we say comfortably and yeah. people know that it refers to people who identify as queer, but people also know that it can refer to something that's unique and different. So I thought that was kind of refreshing just from like a syntax language perspective. I liked that a lot. Well, listeners, if you are not fully convinced that you need to go listen to down the yellow brick pod. I I don't know that there's much more that I can tell you because this has just been so lovely. I've loved chatting with you. I was going to tell you to give us your like whole pitch about your show, but I feel like if listeners don't get it by now, then I, I, yeah, I don't know (laughs) what to tell you. What else have you been reading lately though, that you would want to share with listeners? It can be Oz related. It doesn't have to be.
2: Okay. I have, I'm always reading 18 books. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say the book that is making me like I'm running to my husband, I'm running to M to be like, I need to tell you what I just read, which is um, This Was Hollywood. It's by Carla Valderrama. It's a nice like coffee table, tinier coffee size table book. It's kind of modeled like an old Hollywood magazine, but it's all stories that were kind of buried from the 1920s, like it's the evolution of Hollywood, how it was created, but all these stories that were kind of written out of history. So there's a lot of like women pioneers that no one really knows about that should be household names, um, but aren't because they weren't included. And just these stories are nuts. I I can't believe some of the the like to bring in the Emerald City meta uh, metaphor of just like how much was hidden. Um, that was happening in Hollywood in the 30s, like how much shady shit was happening is nuts. But this book is so, so cool. And it really does a great honor to performers who should definitely be remembered.
1: We both just read uh, Felix Ever After yes! by Kacen Callender. Well, yeah. Highly recommend. So good. Um, it is about a 17 year old uh, trans boy growing up in New York City and the relationships that he has at his performing arts Uh, high school and questioning and developing his confidence in his identity beyond gender and it's it's really heartfelt and and really sweet and
0: an, an amazing YA novel so good Yeah, well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to the wonderful Wizard of Oz, and of course, links to all things down the Yellow Brick pod. It has been so fun chatting with you both. I'm so glad that we are finally able to get this on the calendar. I know listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation, and I just appreciate your time, and I appreciate you sharing your expertise with me because you really are
2: experts. Oh, thanks, Allie. We really love this. Thank you so much. This
1: was so special. Thank you, Allie. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.